Amen. So we have been in a series uh, throughout a good portion of the spring and into the early part of uh, well, summer here. We're close. And we're going to be concluding that series today. The series is called Timeless Truth. And I encourage you, you can go back and watch all of the, the different parts of that if you've missed any or maybe you're just finding yourself here at LCX. Uh, We've been going through books of the minor prophets and really examining a lot of the timeless truths that God's messengers were sent to deliver to his people. Messages that were alive and well and penetrating back then into culture, into families, into homes, into individual lives. But these things are still alive and well today. You could say it this way, every generation needs to hear these things afresh for themselves and stand on the words and promises of God with their own faith. Kind of like Katie was saying, our faith has to show up. And the Word of God is what we base our faith on. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we're saying in Timeless Truth, this is our truth, it's the only truth. It's not a bunch of relativism. It's not what's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. There may be choices in our lives that are like that. Like, am I going to get that from the buffet line or that from the buffet line, right? But when it comes to truth, there is only one source. And we're kind of in a day and age, you might agree with me about this. I think it's true where much of culture is is turning hard away from the one source of truth and, and trying to embrace all different kinds of truth, where it's just this confusion and there is no absolute. And the Word of God for the people of God is what we anchor ourselves in. I'll say it to you this way, you can build your life on it. You can build your life on it and it'll be solid rock that everything you build upon stands. If you build your life on anything else, relativism, the cultural truths of the day, then it will be sinking sand that will come crashing down at some point in time. Are you with me? So we've been going through the books of the minor prophets, and today, this is actually part 10 of the series. There are 12 minor prophets, so there are a few that we didn't get to, Um, but I do want to mention this that we're not going to get into the book of Malachi, but we did a series two years ago. It was a four-part series called The Blessed Life, and it was out of a very deep dive into the book of Malachi, talking about giving to the Lord and the storehouse and the covenant that God has with His people who honor Him in the area of first fruits or the tithe. And so I would encourage you, if you weren't around then, maybe to go back and check that out because it kind of ties in a little bit to this series for me. But today, as we close out, we're going to visit with the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah. Zechariah was one of three... Uh, most scholars agree, one of three prophets that were post-exilic, or exilic, which means they prophesied to Israel after the time of the captivity, after they were in exile in Babylon, okay? Zechariah, um, as you go through the 14 chapters of this book, it's kind of broken up into three sections. You've got The first six chapters, which are like nine visions that Zechariah gets, and it seems that these visions and these parts of his writings, or at least the experience, happened in the early part of his life. There's a verse where he says, when I was a young man, and so it looks like they're kind of broken up into different stages throughout his life, that entire book. Chapters 7 and 8 are a few years after the visions. But then chapters 9 through 14 are likely later on in the prophet's life. Chapter 14 of Zechariah is one of my all-time favorite chapters in the Bible. And really what begins to happen in chapters 9 through 14, and that's really where we're going to focus mainly on today, 
is that the prophet Zechariah, one of the things he's well known for is that he begins to talk about a significant moment that will come, which is known as the return of the Lord. The return of the Lord. In fact, if you're taking notes, that's the title of this message today, The Return of the Lord. And what you'll see is the prophecies about Jesus' return sometimes um, are just kind of mixed right in with other prophecies that are speaking about near-term events, but then also prophecies that speak about the first coming of the Messiah, which we, knew, we know already happened, and then also the second coming, which is yet to come. The Bible says is that much about the, ministry, the, the gospel of Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jewish people. This is one of the things that is a stumbling block, is that a lot of the prophetic scriptures from the Old Testament that speak about the Messiah, many of them have already happened in the first advent or first coming of Christ, but many of them are still yet to be filled, fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. So it'd be kind of like if you're looking in the sky and you see two stars right alongside of each other, and the first star's here and the first star's here, but this one is a million miles away and this one is a billion miles away. They're right there, both kind of in view, but they have a different arc as far as where they are in proximity. Does that make sense? And so when we read prophetic scriptures, we have to be aware of that. And here's the other thing we have to be careful especially as a minister and as a pastor, we have to be careful not to arrive at uh, too many absolute conclusions about eschatology or prophetic scripture of end times that's yet to be fulfilled because there's still a lot of it that is just a mystery. But there's much of it that we do need to hear and take in and that we can really understand and apply to our lives today. A lot of what Zechariah speaks of, interestingly enough, parallels with what the Apostle John centuries later will write about in the book of Revelation. So again, with the stars kind of lining up with each other but far distances apart, Zechariah and then John in Revelation, you see many echoes. In fact, John even kind of adds layers of understanding beyond what Zechariah gave in his writings. A couple of the things I just want to mention to you that we won't dive in deep into in this book, but you just... I, these are statements or verses that the prophet Zechariah would be well known for writing or saying that you have probably heard before. It's one of those things where you're like, oh yeah, that, that resonates. So I know I've heard that before. I just want you to know where they come from in Scripture. So we established something there. The prophet Zechariah in chapter 9 was the one who prophesied that the Messiah, the king, would come riding in on a lowly donkey. So you remember that, right? The triumphal entry that we speak much about at Easter. Zechariah is the one who prophesied that very specific event. He is also the prophet who says, not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Powerful charge and encouragement to the, the man Zerubbabel who was rebuilding the temple ruins at that time because the work had ceased due to threats and intimidation from adversaries of the Lord, the Bible tells us, in that land. So this was actually a word meant to encourage the discouraged. Right? Discourage means to take courage out. Encourage means to put courage in. So I think maybe that we would all relate to this. We find ourselves in places in our own purpose and journey where we are discouraged. It'd be good if there was a word to encourage us in these times. He says, not by might or by power, but by my spirit. The oil of the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our lives 
guys, is enough to equip us to accomplish everything that God is calling us to do. And it is, an, it is an endless supply of oil, not only to accomplish what God's plan for our life is, but listen, to continue the works of building Jesus' church and advancing His kingdom. It's important for us to know that because it's not sheer strength, it's not willpower, it's not great abilities, it's not wealth, it's not how many numbers of people are showing up. These are not the factors that are going to drive God's plans coming to fruition. It's His Spirit operating in us and among us that are going to bring these things to pass. I think we even live in a day today where in the church many are very resistant to the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. I spoke last week about how we need not just head knowledge about God, we need experiential knowledge as well, right? We need to know Him. This is what intimacy and knowing Him is about. Not just about Him, but to know Him in intimacy. We need experiential knowledge in the church today, and we need supernatural power flowing through people's lives in the church today by the Holy Spirit to enable and equip them to do things and fulfill things that man is incapable of doing by might or by power, but very much capable of doing by the equipping of the Holy Spirit. It says, not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And he says, the eyes of the Lord scan the earth to and fro. I love this verse. I, I meditate on this so often. It, just, it says, God sees everything, right? There's nothing hidden from him. Have you ever, have you ever be honest, have you ever done that before? Where you, like, you think you're sort of shoving something in the corner where nobody can see it, right? Like you even convince yourself that you... You forgot it was there. But God sees everything. There's nothing that's hidden from Him. His eyes are scanning the earth to and fro. In another place in the scripture it says, where will He find faith? Right? God is looking for men and women who are willing to step out and step up for Him and put it all on the line. Go all in for Jesus. I don't care what it costs me. This is the life I'm going to live. I, I, there is no other purpose and plan for me. It's all about Christ and His will for my life. I believe the eyes of the Lord even today are looking. I've got great work to do. I'm going to keep building my kingdom until I come back. Who on the earth has faith and will step into the things that I want to do? Another verse, this is the last one I'll hit on, that he says, you probably heard before, is do not despise the day of small beginnings. Do not resent the seeds of small that God puts in our hands. Because the seed has the full life-giving ability to produce the fullness of the plant that can come. Does that make sense? How we steward the seed will determine how we steward the harvest. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Don't resent it. And when God puts something in your hands, calls you to step out and do something for Him that might seemingly be small to you, in the moment, here would be my encouragement. Give your whole self to everything that God asks you to do. Go all in. Give your whole self. Amen? So that's just some of the stuff that you'll find in the book of Zechariah that I wanted to just bring into view for you. But as we dig in, we're really going to get into chapters 12 through 14. We're going to talk about the return of the Lord. The second coming of Christ is not a sideline aspect of our theology. It's it's not this little compartment 
that just kind of sits over here that gets unused. Um, the return of Christ is a biblical foundation. It, it is a key element or pillar of doctrine. <laughs> so I want to ask you to ask yourself these two questions as we get into this. How does the return of Christ fit into your theology? And how does the return of Christ fit into your daily life? Because I think what I'm hoping to show you today is that for many people, the idea of Jesus returning is kind of a back-in-the-distance thought. They know a little bit about it. Some, some people don't even really acknowledge that. But the early church in the early centuries, and we see this through the writings of Scripture, listen to me, the early church was enamored with it. Enamored. They, they could not stop talking about it and it made its way up into almost every conversation, exhortation, rebuke, instruction. It was over and over and over again. The early church experienced a lot of persecution. We know that too. There were a lot of pressures and threats against people who were living for their faith in Jesus Christ. But the doctrine of the return of Christ was something that anchored them and that encouraged them to persist and persevere even through that adversity. All I'm trying to say is if that was this big of a deal to the early church, then we as believers advancing God's kingdom to one which Jesus will return for, then there's something about the return of Christ that is absolutely important to our theology, to our walk of faith in daily living. Perhaps there's something about it that can encourage the soul like nothing else can in our times of very difficult tribulation. Let's go to chapter 12. And uh, we're going to start here. And I'm going to break this up into sort of like three parts. And the first part is we're going to talk about what happens to God's people when He returns. The second part is we're going to talk about the battle of Armageddon, the war that is waged at the end. And then the third part, we will talk about the actual return of Christ onto the earth. And I don't know about you, but for me, when I hear these scriptures, when I pray on these things and I peer into these things, it elevates my faith. It produces a fire and a passion and a longing in me that I cannot explain or attach to anything else except the truth of the fact that my king is coming back. Hmm. You know, Jesus had some powerful words for us too. He said things like, you need to be watching. Told parables about servants that were kind of chastised for getting caught up in cares of the world and forgetting that the master was away and became frivolous. And when the master came back, they were surprised and then they were chastised. And he compared that to a servant who was watchful, not knowing the day or the hour, but knowing that at any point the master could return and he was doing everything he could to serve the master's wishes and his will so that he was ready and prepared when he showed up. Almost like a person just looking out the window, knowing that somebody's coming home. They just don't know when, but they don't leave that glass. Jesus is like, this is the posture that I want you to have. It's kind of fascinating to me because throughout all of the centuries, you know, the expectation 
is we don't really know when he's coming back, but at the same time, it could literally be any time. So there's a readiness to our lives, are you with me, that we're living for because somewhere in our heart, in our faith, in our daily walk, it's constantly circulating up there, the master's coming back, the master's coming back, the master's coming back. So let's go to chapter 12 and uh, begin in verse 1. We'll have it on the screen if you don't have your Bible here. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all of the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and I will strike every horse of the people with blindness. Let's pause there. Let's pray. Dear God, I ask that you would just speak clearly through me today. Lord, I pray you'd put your word in my mouth and it'd just be like a fire, God, that has to get out. I pray that it would come forth with accuracy, God, with boldness, with clarity precision. Lord, I know and I believe with all my heart that your word never returns void, and I pray that it would go forth from me as good seed today that would settle on the ripe soil of people's hearts. I pray, Holy Spirit, even right now that you'd turn over some ground in some hearts that might be hardened to your word, to your truth, or to your ways. I I come against and bind any religious spirit that has someone bound up into an unhealthy life of orthodoxy that leads away from the spirit of the law and into the letter of the law. And God, I pray that you would just open up hearts to receive what you want us to receive today. We ask that your kingdom would come forth and advance in and through our lives. Help us to be a people who serve you well and keep our eyes fixed upon you, Lord. We say, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So in these early verses of chapter 12, you know, he says, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all who come to lay siege against it. All who attempt to heave her away, I will make her like a heavy stone that cuts them into pieces. There's a important aspect of prophecy and of scripture that we have a foundation of which is that God has an everlasting covenant with his people and this people we know are the people of Israel God's chosen people and we know that that is advanced beyond that, into the church and the body of Christ as well. But there are some doctrines that believe in what's called replacement theology, which means that the promises to Israel no longer exist, that that really uh, was fulfilled in the church and the body of Christ. And we don't subscribe to that doctrine of replacement theology. I would tell you that there is very much a covenant that God has with Israel that will never be broken. And that there is also a continuation of His covenant with His people that applies to us as the church, the body of Christ. We see evidence of that in Romans 11 where he says there's a wild branch and a natural branch and they're grafted together, but they both still exist. I could show you many other places, but I just 
say that to kind of pave the way for some explanation of these verses is that as we approach the end of the church era before Jesus returns, we know there is a time of great tribulation on the earth, great suffering that will begin to arise under the reign of one known as the Antichrist. The mission and purpose is to destroy the works of God and there is a great battle that will be waged at the end against the people of God. And these scriptures speak about it, that all the nations of the world who are against God, they will come and they will rally to the city of Jerusalem to lay siege and attack the city and God's people. There are even radicals out there in the world today that their mission is to force and push Israel out of their land and into the sea. They want to abolish them completely. So we see that there is an evil force and spirit out there that is never going to stop persecuting and attacking God's people until Jesus returns and settles things once and for all. So there's this marching in of armies to Jerusalem, and he says, whoever tries to heave her away, whoever tries to destroy my people, whoever tries to take this land away from my people, he said, I'm going to make Jerusalem like a cup of drunkenness to them, meaning they're going to stumble and be frustrated in their ways in the end, and they're going to be like a stone that will cut them into pieces, meaning that their efforts will never succeed, and God will protect and preserve His people. I'll tell you this, I don't want to be found standing against Israel. I don't want to be found standing against God's people because it's very clear that he is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to do some work to restore his chosen nation to himself. And all who are trying to oppose that will be dealt with most ferociously. We even see pictures in these verses, a stone that will cut them into pieces We see, you can lay this right over with verses in Revelation 19. It says that when Jesus returns, that the clouds tear open, he has eyes of fire, and that there is a sword that is coming out of his mouth that strikes the nations of the world. Zechariah says there'll be like a stone that cuts them into pieces, and John says there's a sword coming out of his mouth that's going to strike the nations. This fascinates me. He's saying that if you are my people, my chosen nation, or if you are my bride, the body of Christ, you need to know that no matter what kind of force from hell tries to attack and destroy you or or push you out, meaning bring an end to you and everything about what God is doing in your life, that God will never let you go. He will stand for you and those who are against you will definitely see that God is for you in the end. Hmm, says they're going to be struck with confusion and blindness. Verse number 9 in chapter 12, put that up there. It says that it shall be in that day, I will seek to destroy all of the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then he says that, Jerusalem will be inhabited again and forever. You know, since the Roman siege in 70 AD, the Jewish people have essentially been dispersed, scattered throughout the world. And God's saying, though they be scattered, I will regather 
and I will eternally plant them in their promised land. You know, sometimes we feel disoriented. We feel knocked off course, don't we? We feel distracted. Like I'm in all kinds of places right now and I just need to, I need to kind of get it all together and see clearly. Distraction, dispersion, disorganization, confusion is work of the enemy. But God always comes to bring order and bring clarity and bring a sound mind. Amen. I'm just, I'm trying to kind of show you. I know this is some, a little deep, but I'm trying to show you how you see these layers of truth in what was happening in the time of the prophets, in, in the time for God's people throughout all the ages, and even the fulfillment and the return of Christ, how it culminates. I, I think there are going to be aspects of this when God returns in the veil kind of drops that we'll all gaze upon and marvel on for eternity. Like that's what you were doing. My God, so much bigger than I could have imagined. So God has a plan for his people. And in verse 10, he says, I will pour out my spirit of grace and supplication. He says that they will mourn for him whom they've pierced. So the idea of the nation of Israel rejecting Jesus as their Messiah when he came for the first time. Listen, when Jesus comes back and wraps this whole thing up, he says their eyes are going to be opened. They're going to see their Messiah for who he is. And I am going to restore them to myself. So there is a promise that carries on into the eternal age for everyone who puts their faith in God. Verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 2, he says, I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. And so I love this because God is going to deal with demonic spirits once and for all. They're eventually going to get purged. And see what you see is the return of Christ when we hear about Armageddon and suffering and destruction and all these things. Listen, for the heart of the believer, we have to get this, that Jesus is coming back to bring life for us who know him, not death. He's coming back to make things right that were wrong under the curse of sin and death. He's coming back to restore all things as he originally designed them to be. This is a wonderful, beautiful moment that we can long for and look forward to because if we are in Christ, this will be a glorious day. Amen? That was better than one hand clap, but all right. Thank you from the front row. <laughs> You're just like, wow, this, yeah, this, is, this, is, this stuff fascinates me. Um. So go to chapter 14 now. And let's read in verse 1. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Pause. The day of the Lord is coming. So here's what prophecy does, okay? Prophecy warns. We've talked a lot about that through the series. Prophecy edifies. It encourages, I hope that's happened every time too, but it also predicts. And what the Word of God predicts by way of prophecy, it's going to happen no matter what. It's happening. It's coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Jesus is coming back for His people. I mean, I sometimes think about it, it's like, well, I mean, whether you doubt it, believe it, it, it really, I mean, I want everybody to believe it, but at the end of the day, it, you're, everybody will believe. Everybody will see and acknowledge and know 
Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, everybody will worship. It says all above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth, even the demonic spirits and the rebellious who've died rejecting Christ, they're going to also worship Him from all of it, for all of eternity, but from a very different perspective and vantage point. It is coming, it is going to happen. And some people say, well, man, there's like some, you know, real, boy, there's, there's some urgency and just some real seriousness to the way that certain Christians talk. Like they're really zealous that people would believe in Christ. Well, when you understand what's at stake, you understand why the urgency and why the seriousness that's there. Ah, the day of the Lord is coming Verse 2, he says, I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Say it like this. You just got to know you serve a God who fights for you. He shows up ahead of you and he's still working behind you and all around you and within you. We serve a God who fights for us. In chapter 2, you know what he says? He says, I am like a wall of fire surrounding my people. He says, whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. Oh, I love that I have a God who shows up to fight for me in spiritual battles and warfare that this fleshly human man is incapable of fighting on his own. We serve a God who's a wall of fire around us. Oh, I just want you to see him for who he really is and what he can really do for you in your life. This isn't hype, folks. I mean, you know, some people, oh, it's just hype. They're just trying to create an emotional response. You can believe whatever you want to believe. I'm going to my death knowing I laid it all out there. I'm telling you what you hear from me and see from me. This is a life that's pulsating from the inside out because of what I see about Jesus and who he is and what's coming for me in my life. This is as genuine as it gets. I'll lay it all out there for him. Oh, hallelujah. Verse 4 He says, and in that day, he says, in that day, I'm going to get excited. I'm just going to let you know right now. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a large valley. Half the mountain will move to the north and half of the mountain to the south. And then you will flee through my mountain, from the mountain valley. You shall flee as you fled from the earthquake. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. Oh, (laughs) we see it in Revelation, we see it in Zechariah, we see it in Ezekiel, that there's a massive shaking of the earth that's going to happen. It says whenever Jesus comes that this this massive earthquake is going to rip the Mount of Olives in half. And his feet will descend and rest upon it. I'm telling you, I don't believe that this is just figurative language right here. I believe that this is literal, that part of the reason why there's this ghastly response and confusion is because they don't know what to make of this massive display of the clouds tearing open and Jesus' feet coming down as the earth is shaking and the mountain is being ripped in half. The Bible says that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. (laughs) His feet come down and they rest upon the Mount of Olives and he gazes upon his holy city to make everything right that the enemy has made wrong. He is the king of an everlasting throne and kingdom that will never end and he is setting in on the earth for the eternal age as this begins to happen. 
If you recall in the book of Acts, when Jesus ascended up to heaven after being on the earth in resurrected form for some days, when he ascended, where were they? I'll tell you, they were on the Mount of Olives. And as he ascended into heaven, and heaven opened and received him, do you remember what the angel said to the disciples who were watching? He will return in the same manner that he just left. Do you see it? As the heavens opened and received him. The Bible says, John says in Revelation 19, I looked up and I saw heaven ripped apart, ripped open in half as, the, as Jesus became, came back on the white horse. And he left from the Mount of Olives and his feet are coming right back down on top of the Mount of Olives when he ascends. <clears throat> says it was split in half and it was made like a valley in Ezekiel 47 he has a vision of the of the millennial temple and he says i saw a spring of water that was like life-giving water that flowed out from under the temple in jerusalem to the east and then it turned and it ran through the valley south he said it made its way to the sea where nothing lives, which is the Dead Sea. You know, the Dead Sea is so full of salt concentration that absolutely nothing can live or survive in it. And it is, in fact, the lowest point on the face of the earth. Think about that. And what's going to happen whenever Jesus comes and the earth shakes and the mountain of olives rips in half? The water, of the spring water under the temple is going to flow to the east through this valley and it's going to flow down into the Dead Sea and it says when it touches it, everything's going to begin to live. <laughs> Everything in the valley will produce fruit. It will be lush. It will be ripe. You know why? Because everything that Jesus touches begins to bring forth fruit whenever he does. Mm. We've been in Israel a couple of times and this is fascinating to me. But there are actually fault lines that run right underneath the Mount of Olives. In fact, there are places on the mountain where they don't even have buildings or structures because of the instability and even small tremors that happen almost daily right there. I'm just saying, science proves what God has already told us is going to happen. Uh, verse 12, listen to this. When Jesus comes, it says, And this shall be the plague which the Lord will strike the people who fight against Jerusalem. Their flesh, oh, think about this. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Some people say theories, like, well, this, this is... Um, this is similar to what modern types of warfare would produce, just incinerated in, in a moment, you know, which is true. And, and who knows? But I'll tell you this, it also says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that whenever he comes back, that he will destroy the lawless one with the brightness of his coming. Zechariah says on the day he returns, when it becomes evening, it will still be light. Why is that? Because the glory of God is setting on the earth and he is so bright and so illuminated that I think it's the brightness of his coming that is for all those who are rebellious, they just they can't even stand in his glory because they haven't been covered by the blood. Mm. Hallelujah. Man. Verse 10. It says, The land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place. From Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate in the corner gate. Now listen to this. This is fascinating. I could, I could talk about this for hours. 
when he comes back and the earth shakes, it says that he's just going to make everything like a plane. But the mountain of Jerusalem and the holy city is going to be raised up. Picture a diamond being set right into a ring that's just being raised up. God is always about raising his people up to be a banner for him in the land. Earlier in Zechariah, he says, my people, they're like a crown of jewels that beautify the land. Wow. He says, they're like a brand that's been plucked out of the fire. A fire brand. (laughs) When I say things Sunday after Sunday and week after week, like God's people are a marked people. You're meant to display the favor of God, to be blessed, so blessed in your life with spiritual blessings that that the world around you cannot help but notice the goodness of God. I'm telling you, it's consistent with everything Scripture talks about, about God's people from beginning to end. He says, you're like a firebrand plucked out of the fire. You're image bearers for me. You're to bear Christ's image to the world. He says, when I come back, that city, it's going to be raised up, and everything else is going to be leveled out like a plane. You know, John the Baptist said that too. Make straight the crooked places. Make, make way for, prepare the way for the Lord. He said, all of the valleys will be filled, and the mountains shall be no more. And you can apply this to spiritual battles in your life. He said it to Zechariah in chapter 4. He said, I'm going to make your adversaries like a plain before you. The mountain will become a plain. So think about the spiritual battles, the mountains that you've faced or are facing or will face in your life. Spiritual realm, these things are happening in beyond just the physical and literal realm. And I want to encourage you and tell you today, church, that God, who is fighting for you, can take that mountain that you might not be able to see over or around, but when you put your faith in Him, He can wipe that mountain away and make it as a plain before you so that you can begin to see clearly on the horizon that God has ahead for you in your life. And only he can do that. Only he can do that. Hmm. And then verse 9 says this, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The king of kings. It's not just a fancy saying that sounds good coming off the lips. He is the king of kings. There is none like him. And when he comes back and he restores all things, purges evil, sets things back in order, he's going to establish a throne that Scripture speaks about again and again. The angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, you're going to have a son. And he will, he will sit on the throne of his father David, and of his it will be an everlasting throne and kingdom. There it is right here. When Christ comes back, he sets up a throne. And I want to tell you something, and I know many of you can say this too, but I hope that this encourages you. So I want to say, like, this is part of your daily faith walk, right? This, this tr- these truths, this doctrine, like, this isn't something we think about once in a blue moon. Like, th- this, this moved the early church forward every single day. This is our king. This is who we serve, This is what he has planned for us. This is what's coming. When it happens, and we don't know the day or the hour, there are signs that we can look for, but we don't know. And when it happens, I promise you, I assure you, there will not be anything else that's going on that's going to matter in this world or in our lives. Where we're at with Jesus is the only thing that's going to matter. And anything else that rivaled him before, it's going to fade off like a distant memory that's not even there anymore in the background. He's the only thing that's going to be in sight for us. This is why the urgency. This is why the seriousness of this message. Jesus 
is coming back. And he's coming back for his bride. And those who are in Christ, I'll close with this. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, or uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 22. It says that we are sealed by the Spirit, and then we are given the Spirit as a guarantee, the Holy Spirit. So to have it as a, Him as a guarantee, this is fascinating, it means like a deposit on more that's yet to come. Hmm. And the Holy Spirit that lives in us, Paul says in Romans, bears witness to our spirit that we're children of God. So let me say it like this. There is no doubt in me because he lives in me. Now, when I say something like that, like, well, Christ lives in me, that may not mean something to someone else, but I'm telling you what, it settles it for me. (laughs) That's what he means whenever he says, He's given us his spirit as a seal, as a guarantee. Peter says, this is is our living hope. We live in this life knowing, not wondering, not hoping, knowing because the spirit is alive in us. It's truth. It's done. I'm his child and I have the future coming that he says his children have. And now I just want to live my life serving him and his kingdom and anticipating his return. Amen. Church, we have a glorious future. We serve a God who's a wall of fire. Who will fight for you. Who will make the mountains before you plains. And when he comes back on that white horse with eyes of fire hair of wool, white robe that's dipped in blood on his thigh. It says king of kings, a sword that's coming out of his mouth, the brightness of his glory that comes riding in on a white horse. You know what it says? Revelation 19, verses 5 and verse 8, it says all the saints will be there with him. It says the armies of God will come marching behind him on white horses as well. All who have went to their mortal grave believing in Christ. We're all going to be right there. We're going to see it firsthand. And the angel armies will be there. And we will marvel for all of eternity at his work.